Please remain standing, and if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'll be reading from verse 4 through 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 through 10. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you may become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Oh, this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, summary of the new series and last week's passage is that Paul and others had to abruptly leave this early, early church plant in Thessalonica that reports are saying that this is not just any old regular church, but a thriving church, not necessarily numerically, but spiritually because of the reception of God's worth and faith. And Paul is overjoyed by the report of his companion and co-laborer, Timothy, who has now returned to uh, Corinth where Paul and Silas are and giving this report that even though they have left the Thessalonians there, praise be to God, they are still growing in faith, in their sanctification. Their growth is evident, as we heard last week, in the work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ our Lord. They are remembering them and thanking God for this wonderful favor and blessing, salvation, what we heard about earlier, this justification by faith alone that is now leading to a life lived unto God in this Macedonian community in northern modern-day Greece. And they remember them constantly through prayer. This is how they express their gratitude, constantly, always remembering them, to pray for all of them, not just certain leaders, but for all of them. They're eager to hear more of these good reports of their persevering journey in faith. And so what are the reasons for this good report? How do churches thrive is what we'll be discussing in the months to come. What is the fountain that enables this overflow of this small upstart church? Well, we'll get to those answers in today's passage from verse 4 through 10. But let me pray just one more time. Oh, Father, we ask by the aid of your Holy Spirit to illuminate this text for us. Oh, these short verses, but powerful verses. Uh, may they go more than just in one ear and out the other, but may they penetrate deep within our souls and may our hearts turn from idols and be given over to you. We pray for this ministry of the proclaimed word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, testimonies. Testimonies of faith are a wonderful way to get to know one another at any church, but especially here at Westminster. For if we truly want to know one another here, one of the greatest things to learn 
is how we came to Christ in saving faith. What are the normal questions we ask? Oh, nice to meet you for the first time. Where do you live? What do you do? How long have you been in this church? What's your favorite food, et cetera, et cetera. But if you really want to get to know someone, say, hey, so share a little, if you can, how you came to Jesus, how you came in faith, how you saved by grace. What was the, what's the story look like? Perhaps it's recent or perhaps decades ago, whenever that was, when God gripped you by the message of the free gift of grace of our Savior Jesus Christ and never let go to share that. I'd love to hear all of your testimonies eventually here at Westminster with meals with you, with coffee, with just coming to my office or whatever. Over the months, over this last 12 months, hearing more and more of your testimonies is a blessing to the soul. And I was invited to our high mileage group over the summer, shout out to them. Men who are over 70 and over that meet once a month for fellowship. They always offer me a free meal. And I was blessed to hear about their backgrounds though. It was a sweet time of fellowship. Their stories of yes, ups and downs, but of course of saving faith, the most important event in one's life. When God regenerated darkened, dead hearts to new life because of the word of the gospel of God received by faith, I get to know them more by hearing more of this journey. And when we interview our prospective new members, we'll do that again this afternoon. We get to hear with eagerness the stories of their coming to faith, and it's all a blessing truly from God, and not one story is the same as another. It reminds us again of these first verses from chapter 1 to direct our thanksgiving to God our Father for the gift of faith, the evidence of faith in the lives of brothers and sisters here who want to make a covenant commitment here before the Lord to this church and one another. Perhaps you're sitting around people here that you've known for years and you never heard once their story about coming to faith in Christ. Invite them over for a meal, a drink, and just share with one another how amazing our great God truly is for saving wretched sinners like us for his purpose and glory. And keep this in mind then, your journey of faith as we journey through today's text from verses 4 through 10 and outline what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. What happens when it's received in faith and in power? And what should happen then afterward by the leading of the Holy Spirit? And as I mentioned earlier, this passage truly is about the power of the word of God. And so today's passage can be organized by four headings, and I'll go through them as we go along in the sermon. But the first heading is this. They all involve the word of God. Number one, the first heading is the word comes in power. The word comes in power. If you look at your text, verse 4 and 5, at least the first portion of verse 5, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that, we, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Having heard the wonderful report of the thriving church of Thessalonica, even though the apostle and these early missionaries have left, they hear the report evidenced by their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, verse 3. Paul said this is the evidence that they are truly saved, the mark of true salvation. The fruit is showing. And so he says, I know, we know. This is the reason that they have been chosen by God. This is the reason. Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Evidence then, faith, love, and hope. But if you're chosen by God, that means that you're loved by God. 
You're never chosen by God but not loved by him. They go hand in hand. So Paul is teaching continually this early church. Again, the wonderful verses from Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. In love, he predestined us. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see, the motivation of the theological term of election is love, the Bible says. A love that doesn't come with preconditions or pre-qualifications. Or God seeing in the future and say, oh, Robin, what a, what a little good, good boy he was growing up and a good man he is now, and so I will elect him. No, it says by strictly by the purpose of his will. The great reformer John Calvin in the 1500s noticed so well, quote, we must attribute the cause of our salvation to his free goodness. For we had nothing to recommend ourselves into his favor. Therefore, we must put the cause and fountain of our salvation in him only and ground ourselves upon it, close quote. Oh, friends, we have nothing to recommend ourselves to God's favor. Isn't that a great reminder to today? That's entirely backwards from the lens of the world. That's entirely, completely counter-cultural. The world tells us that there must be something attractive about you, something commendable, something that makes you worthy in their eyes, something you can bank on either in your personality or depth of talent or some prestige in your background for the world to say, now we accept you, now we will hire you, now we will promote you, now we will associate with you. For teens and children here, allow me and allow your mother and father as you drive home remind you of this over and over again, your worth in the eyes of God, your salvation worthiness, if you could say it that way, has nothing to do with how handsome you become, how pretty you are, how smart or intelligent you are, how well behaved you are, how moral you are, how quote unquote good you are how popular you become, how athletic you are, how proud you make your family, and so on and so forth. That has nothing to do with why God would choose to save you. And that doesn't go for elementary students or junior high students or high school or college students only, but that goes for every single one of us, brother and sister, to be reminded of this truth. Because if it was based on that, if so, the Apostle Paul tells us elsewhere, oh, we would have some reason then to boast then of our salvation. But when we realize we are dead in the grave six feet under because of our sin, and there is nothing innately good in us to commend ourselves then to God, and he then still chooses to save us in Christ, Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, guess who gets all the praise? We say thanks be to God, almighty God. We boast only in him. I spent a little extra time on this because this is so essential for Paul. It should be so essential for us to get this right. Sure, we offer thanks to God for their faith, hope, and love in Thessalonica, but that just shows that they are chosen by God out of his initiative, out of his electing love, out of his goodness, and out of the purpose of his perfect will. And how do they know they were loved by God? Well, friends, the gospel came to Thessalonica and flipped everything upside down. Verse 5, the gospel came to them not only in the proclaiming of God's word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit 
and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, going back to last week's first verses, we notice a repetition of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might have wondered, where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? Well, in verse 5 and later in verse 6, the acknowledgement of the third person of the Holy Trinity is highlighted. Paul is thoroughly Trinitarian in his doctrine. One PCA theologian, Rick Phillips, notes that the Trinity is Christianity's highest and greatest mystery. And he so helpfully alludes to our Westminster Lauder Catechism, uh, catechism number, uh, question number 9, that in the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are, quote, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties, end quote. Same in substance, but unique in personal properties and function. Theologians, you may have heard, categorize the roles of the Trinity for our salvation as this. It's that God the Father administers our salvation. Basically, in his sovereign will, God wills our salvation. Then Jesus Christ, the Son, quote, accomplishes the work of our salvation. Of course, coming to earth to live a perfect life, die a perfect, atoning, propitiating death, to be buried, to be raised again in triumph after three days, as verse 10 says. And then finally, the third person, the Holy Spirit, quote, applies salvation to individual believers. And as Phillips concludes, how does one actually then get saved? How does this salvation get applied to sinful old me? He says, quote, the answer is in the work of God the Spirit who gives us faith and unites us to Christ. Now, before we move on, how does this relate to the word of God? Well, with Paul and his co-laborers here, they preach the gospel in power. Theolo theologians call this a general call of the gospel. We think about, some of you guys uh, uh, still remember, I know a lot of younger Christians don't know the name Billy Graham, but many of us remember Billy Graham and the Crusades and, and all the packed stadiums. This general, powerful call of the basics of the gospel and of course, not everyone who hears the general call of the gospel becomes saved, as you well know. But when the power rests on the recipient and the spirit does his work to regenerate and make the heart new, a person will receive the gospel with what Paul says, full conviction. A phrase in the Greek that just means with full acceptance and persuasion in the heart. When that happens, theologians call this the effectual call of the gospel. Not just responding to the general call, but the effectual call of the gospel. Again, from our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 89. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The answer is the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon in London wrote on this verse that Paul, quote, felt a power resting upon him. He spoke the gospel with great positiveness and assurance, and consequently the people received it in power, of course, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's how we receive the word of God in power, by the aid of the Spirit alone. It's not how loud one preaches or how soft or how eloquent or articulate, or the Bible read by yourself solo or with the aid of immense resources. The gospel is received in faith and trust only when the Spirit is providing that power and unveiling. 
some of you guys have recently come to faith would say, that's exactly it. I don't, I don't know what happened. And it wasn't this person or that person that really made the difference. It's just something clicked. Something grabbed my heart. And it was the power of God and the unveiling of his Holy Spirit. And so when that happens, truly, number one, the word does come in great mighty power. Now to number two, the word is received even amidst affliction. Number two, the word is received even amidst affliction. Continuing with the last part of verse five through verse seven. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. You see, the word was proclaimed to the Thessalonians and received in faith, but also amidst much persecution. It's a really short passage in Acts chapter 17, which introduces us to Thessalonica and the Thessalonians. A short description of Apostle Paul and Silas first going there with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preached and persuaded many at the synagogue, mostly who were Greek, but the Jews then were jealous. Most converts were from Greek background, but the Jews were saying, what is this? And they accused them of turning the world upside down. What a great description of the gospel, by the way. And they accused them of worshiping a different king other than Caesar, that's of Jesus Christ. And so what did they do? They, they apprehend this Christian named Jason this church, church house leader amongst them and did what they could to intimidate, snuff out and persecute these new believers, and they, but they did not succeed. As we see in the first letter to the Thessalonians, even amidst much trial, suffering and persecution, the word of God prevailed. What led them to such courage though? How did this happen? Well, several reasons are listed. The Holy Spirit is mentioned again in verse 6. The joy of the Holy Spirit was in them. And they received the good news, not with a nonchalant, comatose attitude, but with joy. And it seems with much vigor and gratitude. And Charles Spurgeon, again, hopefully noted that, uh, noted that there, are, there seems to be frequent contradictions. He hopefully notes that there are frequent contradictions and paradoxes in the Scripture. And at first look, how can someone be experiencing affliction and joy at the same time? Being spat at at one, one minute and then rejoicing in the next. But when you're a believer long enough, the Spirit teaches you joy even in the midst of suffering and affliction. And those of us who have gone along enough in the season and the cycles of Christian living and all the ups and downs and the strengthening, but also in the weakened faith, we understand that that could happen simultaneously. Because the Spirit connects you to the promises and person of Jesus Christ. That union then is the wellspring of our joy, even in the midst of horrible circumstances. Terrible things that could be happening in your life, even right now, brothers and sisters. And your coworker who's not a believer says, what is wrong with you? How, why are you not wrecked to the core and just totally distant and just dropping everything and just in tears and tears and just ruined and you say well there is a wellspring in me because I'm united in Christ I will shed tears sometimes I will doubt sometimes I will question but the spirit always comes around to remind me of my joy in him and when you experience joy in the midst of suffering you realize you can't 
really explain this to the world. Philippians 4, a peace comes over you that transcends all understanding. I had to be taught this truth. You had to be taught this truth here. Experientially through life by the tutoring of the Holy Spirit. And as we mentioned last week, so much Christianity is caught just as it is taught. Apostle Paul and his fellow workers taught them the true gospel, but also, what does it say, lived amongst them long enough for the caught part too. This is what understandably gave them the wherewithal to put into practice what was commended to them in the gospel, but also in the gospel implications on how to then live in the new life. It wasn't just doctrinal things. It wasn't just do this and don't do that and just hear some simple things to take away. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy exhibited the patterns of the new creation life. And this newfound pattern was repeated through faith, by the power of the Spirit, and they became examples to other Christians, not just in that small little hub, but all across Macedonia and Achaia. So again, number two, the word is received even amidst affliction. And we are taught how to live in joy, but also emulating the gospel life pattern of mature believers. You know, I could number plenty of people I could list who did this for me. Yes, some of them were pastors, some of them were preachers but also Sunday school teachers, including my mother, my best friend in my 20s who really exhibited this to me, mentors along the way. I listened to what they had to preach and teach, but I also watched how they lived. And thank God for these people, not perfect people, of course, but enough of a model so that you could catch gospel reception and living and not just be taught, but to catch it. And that leads us to Number three, the word that cannot be contained. Just please note, there, there's a progression here that we'll, we'll summarize in a minute. But try to note the progression here, the word that cannot be contained. Verse eight, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. You see, there's something so beautiful about this natural outflow of faithful gospel ministry. And I pray that this happens and continually here. I'm sure there was some anxiety amongst these leaders who had to leave the church behind. But lo and behold, they are thriving. And their ministry has extended to proclaim the word of the Lord to that entire region. Their model of faith in God going forth everywhere. Paul and the others don't even have to add anything to their witness. This is not Paul saying, oh, we don't need to preach the gospel anymore. Just watch them. No, he's saying we don't actually have to go back for the gospel to continue on. We have these Christians in Thessalonica who are doing this themselves. The Spirit of God is moving in them and leading the charge. Paul and the others can truly say God has no needs. If there was any pride that was welling up in Silas and Timothy and Paul, oh, they're just going to be ruined with us. We're so skilled. We're so trained. We are the cream of the crop. Oh, and they say, oh, the gospel is thriving. God has no needs. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. Yet he chooses to use us for his pleasure and glory. But there is no room for pride. For the word of God cannot be contained. Oh, the word will still go forth in boldness and will spread like wildfire no matter what our enemy or the world tries to do to put a barrier up in front of that. We don't just see that in the history of this country, 
but in all the continents and all the countries, some vehemently opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ to see the word of God not be contained, but flourish. I just love that image. In high school, our township had a strong Scottish heritage. <laughs> it was in our name and in our mascot. We were the Highlanders. And thankfully, none of the boys had to wear kilts to school, but you get the picture. But I remember before football games, there was one little bit of pride that I had of being a Highlander. The marching band would begin with, before a football game, at first, this loud, annoying, screeching, uncontrolled, blaring sound coming from this weird instrument. But once it got its bearing, the Scottish bagpipe ripped through the air with ferociousness. The drums would then follow and kick in, and the band would then march forward in strength and unity. And I'm not sure why I thought of that, but when I read verse 8, that's the picture that came into my mind. Their faith lived out in action. Their gospel testimony accompanied the word of the Lord from the hilltops to the valleys, blaring forth the sound of God's gospel of the free gift of grace, that all who believe shall not perish but have everlasting life. It wasn't hot cross buns that I learned in fifth and sixth grade on my little dinky recorder. It was a blaring trumpet sounding forth because of the witness of the gospel and what it does to transform sinners to be caught by the free gift of grace and the mercy of God. And so, hmm, the question here at Westminster, how can we be a thriving church? Well, that's part of what a thriving church looks like. It doesn't say, oh, what is happening to our culture? What is happening to the world? Nothing's going to happen. But a thriving church says, no, the word will never be contained. And it is our mission, it is our job to blare off the rooftops. Oh, the sweet message of mercy and grace of God. So that's number three, the word that cannot be contained. And finally, number four, the word turns us from idols. The word turns us from idols. This is what is evident in the testimony that was being going forth to the whole region. Verse 9 and 10, and we will conclude. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This, the constant report of this small but thriving upstart church was not only coming from Timothy, theologians note, but through all the trade routes up and down, that word spread through and through how the word of God was proclaimed, was received in faith, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also of the testimony of God's grace that hearts and lives have been turned over in repentance and godly gospel pursuits. You see, you don't turn from darkness and idols and get yourself cleaned up and dress up nice to then say, hey, God, I'm ready to be saved by your word. I'm ready to get rid of all these dark, pitiful, hidden idols. Rather, the word of the Lord, the gospel is proclaimed, accompanied by the spirit of the, uh, power of the Spirit, to then begin the lifelong sanctifying process of smashing present idols in your life. This is what was happening 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica and is still happening in our churches around the world today to not serve ourselves, 
to not serve the world, but to serve the living and true God, it says there. And that wonderful gospel verse in verse 10, to await the achiever of this salvation, the one who accomplished this for us, Jesus Christ, who truly did save us all from the wrath we deserve because of our sin. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ saves us through the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit, through the finished perfect work of the Son, all accomplishing what? The will of the Heavenly Father who chose us in Him before the creation of the world. And so the testimony then is validated by powerful transformation of lives. Guess who sees that? Yes, those in our walls, but to the watching world. And as Acts 17 says, the naysayers might say, they're just flipping the world upside down. Yes, indeed, because this is what happens to our lives in the gospel. And so let us receive God's word and power and, of course, never look back. But we are human. We have a sin condition, a sin problem. And when we stumble and fall, when we look back to idols that creep back in, don't then come up with an alternative solution. Okay, God tipped me in by grace alone, but now it's up to me to stay in grace alone. Now it's up to me to be creative enough in how to persevere to the very end, and I'm going to use any measure I can to get me there. Instead, Paul and the apostles and the co-laborers there say, go back to the word. Go back to counting on the gift of faith to believe in the finished work of Christ. Return back to what the gospel actually says and say to God, I believe, but help me in my times of unbelief. And so we see from verse 5 through 10, any of us can note the progression we see in the three-step process here with the word that I think is part and parcel of what it is to be a thriving church. Number one, the word of God is first proclaimed by servants of the word. Number two, the word of God received in faith by the work of the Holy Spirit. But we cannot duck this. Number three, the word of God then goes forth as a fruit of transformational gospel work. You know, slightly modifying a good analogy regarding the church being a telecommunications satellite. Think of a cell phone tower. There's one near my house, actually. The use of a good working cell phone tower is not just to receive input, but then to send out this information to other devices and towers, an input-output entity, such as the church. A good, thriving gospel church cell tower not only receives good news, but then sends out the good news from amongst itself. This is part and parcel of a church's job description, to not only receive and to hoard, but to send out. But what happens when the cell tower gets knocked out by a bad storm? Over the summer, we had some nasty storms roll through around here. And I remember distinctively, one week after a series of strong storms, with, I remember, massive lightning strikes nearby, I think my local cell tower got hit. Because for the next several days or even a week, my cell service was horrible. And so whether I'm understanding cell towers well or not, you get the picture. When the church somehow goes awry with the word, and the purity of the gospel, all we'll get is interrupted service or gibberish that gets sent everywhere. This is not the fault of the word of God. This would be on the church. And so when several of you say to me, and there was actually several of you that said to me this, that it's kind of scary out there in our region, in our valley, where many churches hardly preach from the Bible any longer, or 
the Bible is muted or mostly drowned out by the next popular program or popular style of music or new way of doing church, we then have a major spiritual telecommunications problem. So what's the solution then? Well, the cell tower needs to get completely repaired or replaced altogether. Brothers and sisters, if we compromise on God's word and the gospel, don't be surprised if we don't see fruit. Don't be surprised if we don't see joyful reception come in power or steadfastness of hope because we are grounded in the word. Don't be surprised. We could be replaced too. The spiritual tower won't be useful for anything if we don't guard the unadulterated gospel at all costs. And I'm so thankful that we have some trusted men and women here that can keep me accountable as the main preacher from this pulpit to not just sugarcoat any response to the way I handle the scriptures. And I trust many of you already to say, hey, good stab at the text this morning, but I think you completely left out the gospel. Or good try, but you just didn't quite get us to Christ now, did you? I can handle it. And may I humble myself and say, if true, you're right. Oh, we need to be sharpened here regarding the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the whole tower, the whole entity, derives its strength from the power of the spirit working through the proclaimed ministry of the word of God and the gospel. So instead of following the latest trends, let's dig deeper into God's word to be like the Bereans and search the scriptures on our own to see if this is indeed true and in faith receive the gospel with joy, 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 and gratitude, leaning on the word during deep afflictions, highs and lows, but then sound forth the word of God and herald this good news to the mountaintops and valleys and to anyone who will listen. This is what the thriving church does. This is why the Thessalonians were thriving as believers because all in faith, all in response to this gospel, all aided by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we could say amen, thanks be to God for them 2,000 years ago, we say amen and thanks be to God here in our day. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before you. Our hearts are a mess without you. We have no solution. We are not creative or smart enough or intellectual enough to get ourselves out of a rut of looking towards idols and other ways and solutions. Oh, bring us back to the sweetness of the honeycomb, to taste and see that you are good, to taste and see that this gospel is all lovely, wonderful, compassionate, merciful, and full of grace, that we as a church cannot step one inch forward without you going with us and before us. So I pray Westminster Presbyterian Church would thrive. Oh yes, would thrive. Not because of this or that or programs or new things or good resources, but that we would thrive because we remember and we hold dear to the fullest the gospel of the free gift of grace. Lord, may you build up your church and edify this church as we seek your face. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. If you're able.